join me in Luke chapter 13. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we will be in Luke 13 verses 22 through 30. The title of our sermon this morning is The Master of the House. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are strive, door, and depart. Now I want to tell us a story this morning that most of you probably already know. And it may seem silly that I'm telling it, but stick with me. It's one of my favorites of all of Aesop's fables. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a hare who, boasting how he could run faster than anyone else, was forever teasing the tortoise because of his slowness. One day, the angry tortoise answered back, Who do you think you are? There's no denying that you are swift, but even you can be beaten. And the hare laughed at him loudly. Beaten in a race? By whom? Surely not you. I bet there's nobody in the world that can win a race against me. I am so speedy, so why don't you try? Annoyed with all of this bragging, the tortoise accepted the challenge. A course was planned out, and the next day at dawn, they stood at the starting line. And the hare yawned sleepily at the meek tortoise as he slowly trudged off the starting line. And when the hare saw how painfully slow the tortoise was, he decided to have a quick nap. Take your time, he said. I'll have 40 wings to catch up with you in just a moment. The hare eventually woke up and he looked around and he saw the tortoise. He was only a short distance away, having barely covered a third of the course. The hare breathed a sigh of relief and decided he might as well have breakfast also. And so off he went to munch on some cabbage that he had noticed in a nearby field. But the the heavy meal and the hot sun, he felt his eyes begin to droop and once again he fell fast asleep and was soon snoring happily. The sun began to sink below the horizon and the tortoise who had been plodding toward the winning post ever since they began that morning was only a yard from the finish line. And at that very point, the hare woke up with a jolt. He could see the the tortoise as a speck in the distance and he jumped to his feet and he ran as fast as he can, his tongue hanging out of his mouth, trying to catch every last bit of breath. And just a little more time, he would be there. But the hare's last sleep was just too late for the tortoise had beaten him. The tortoise made it across the, the finish line. Tired and disgraced, the hare slumped down beside the tortoise who was silently smiling at him in all of his glory. Now we learn from this 
very old story, of course, the importance of steady perseverance that we might complete the race and win the prize. The hare had frittered away his time. He thought there would always be a few more minutes that were necessary for him to complete the task that was at hand, but in the end, it was all too late. However, the least likely of the two participants to win the race, the one who had all of the odds stacked against him with the bookies in Vegas, the one who had been laughed at for even showing up in the first place, it was him who won through steady plotting and perseverance to the very end. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus has asked a question in which he answers in what many seem, may seem to be a very surprising way. It certainly would have been a surprise to his hearers. And in this answer that he gives, he promotes the way of the tortoise and he shows the destructive end of those who go through life like the hare. Let me ask you a question. If someone asks you to tell them about your story, how you became a Christian, or how you know you're a Christian, what do you tell them? Do you focus on your lifetime of attendance at church? Do you tell them about your baptism? Maybe you emphasize that your father or your grandfather were deacons. Maybe you're, you're going to speak of the fact that you're very careful about the words you use and the things that you watch. But do these things give you favor with God in the end? Perhaps for some of you, you you know that you're not right with God, but you're simply waiting for tomorrow so that you can live a lavish life of worldliness today. And if we're all honest, there may even be some in here this morning that assume that God will allow them into the kingdom of heaven because, after all, they're a pretty good person. And God is love And he will just deal with our sins in the end. But what does Jesus say? What does the life of a Christian look like? And how can we know whether or not we will enter into the kingdom of God? Well, let's look at our passage this morning to see how Jesus answers these questions and how he calls us as his people to a tortoise-like perseverance and commitment to his great ends. Let's begin in verse 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? We'll stop right there. Now, notice... Luke gives us a reminder of the primary focus of Jesus at this point in his ministry, right there in verse 22. He says he was journeying toward Jerusalem. At this point, the cross is looming large in the eyes of Jesus, and it has been ever since Luke chapter 9. We've seen Jesus making progress toward Calvary's hill. Remember in Luke 9, verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
And now four chapters later, Luke gives us another reminder of what was ahead, of all that Jesus was moving toward. Now, along the way, Jesus is teaching in towns and villages. And as he teaches, no doubt, he encounters many different people with questions about what he is teaching. Now, the scripture that Jesus was using uh, was very familiar to their ears. There's no doubt, though, that the way Jesus was applying that very scripture was quite unlike anything that they had ever heard before. Now, surely there was a mixture of confusion and interest and perhaps even disinterest or disgust or anger at times. But one thing was for sure. They had many, many questions. Jesus probably felt like he was being followed around by a group of four-year-olds. Why? 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 And on and on and on. And remember, most of the people that Jesus was teaching were like many of our neighbors today. Certainly even some of you who are present here this morning. All of the Jewish people surrounding Jesus thought they had it all together when it came to their relationship with God. Not because of a a vibrant, concrete faith in him. No, but because they were ethnically Jewish people. In other words, their hope wasn't in the covenantal promise of God to redeem his people from the curse of sin and death through the Messiah. No, their hope was in their Jewishness. While we don't live around a lot of Jewish people here, we do live around many people who assume they're Christians based on several of those things I have already mentioned. When in fact, it may very well be the case that there is no true hope in Christ at all and therefore no true salvation. It all prompts a very interesting question and indeed it is the very question asked by one of Jesus' followers in verse 23. He asks Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? We don't know exactly who this inquirer was, but by the way Jesus answered him seems to indicate that he wasn't necessarily a friend of our Lord. Most likely, though, I can't say with absolute certainty, but most likely we're dealing here with a self-righteous Jew, a religious man asking the question in order that he could be puffed up a little bit assured of his salvation because of his ethnicity. And perhaps he was attempting to set a trap for Jesus. Let's see how he's going to answer this question. We've seen that many times before. Nevertheless, the question is an interesting one. It is worthy of our consideration regardless of how it was meant to be portrayed. And Jesus didn't waste any time answering this man's question. Let's look at verse 24. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able So here we see Jesus answering the question, and he does it with an imperative, a command. He is saying, do this, and you will be saved. Well, what is it he tells them to do? Strive to enter through the narrow door. Well, what in the world does that mean? 
It's helpful here to take into account what Jesus had said elsewhere. Recall with me Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably very familiar to all of us. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's a very similar statement, but it gives us a bit more insight into what exactly Jesus is saying. Now imagine with me for a moment you set out on a journey to reach a specific destination. And when you get to the beginning of that journey you realize a few things. First, as you set out, you remember that you have been promised that this destination is a place of unfettered joy. No pain, no suffering, no stress, no ailments to your mind or body. All of your relationships are whole. Your sleep is sound. Your mind is clear and your heart is full. But most importantly, when you get there, you will have an unhindered opportunity to spend every moment with the master of the house. Not a tyrannical and vicious master, but a loving, gracious, merciful master that cares for you, that loves you, that seeks to serve you, who's prepared a place for you to call your own from which you will rule the land with him. But as you come to the trailhead on your journey to get to your destination, you realize there are two different trails before you, and each has a different trail guide. You look to the one on your left, and you see a trail with people by the hundreds, by the thousands. They're laughing, sometimes hysterically, and it appears as though they don't have a care in the world. Their path is clear and If you squint your eyes a little bit, it looks as though it's even paved and it's flat. And the tour guide assures you that this path, like all others that you will find, leads to the same destination as everything else. He says, follow me. You'll enjoy this journey. But remember, we live by a certain creed here. You only live once. And then you look to your right. You see way off in the distance what looks to be a man. He's not strolling down a clear, paved, and wide path, but rather he's climbing a very difficult stretch of terrain on a narrow, rocky trail that appears to have many slippery rocks and a lot of overgrowth. It's hard to say what's under those rocks. Venomous snakes behind those bushes, ravenous wolves. And as you watch the man for a while, you notice that it looks like there are times in his journey when he's, he's climbing in areas where there should be some kind of safety harness. Man, it looks like he's hanging on for dear life. And you mention this to the tour guide at the entrance of the trail, and he tells you, you are right, the trail is difficult. And sometimes it seems impossible but I assure you there's a way. It's a narrow path. There are a lot of dangers along the way. But despite what that guy over there has told you, this 
path is the only way to reach your destination. Every other path does not lead to where you are headed. Only one path, and this is it. And I assure you, I promise you, if you stay on this path, there will be much striving required of you. Yes, you will feel weak. Yes, you will feel weary at times, but keep plodding up that hill and you will reach your destination and you will be welcomed inside. Stay on this path and you will make it to the end. It looks like we have a friend of the tortoise here this morning. Come here, buddy. Are you going to catch it for me? Thank you, sir. The exterminator is in town. He got it. All right. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, sir. And that was your intermission. (laughs) Now, this is the picture we get, right, from Jesus as he describes the narrow door. He speaks of a narrow path. And at the end of the path is this narrow door. And to get through that door, Jesus tells us we have to do something. He says we must strive to enter. It's a narrow path. It's hard. It's filled with difficulties and trials. But the promise is at the end of it all, the narrow door is there. There are many, Jesus says in verse 24, who will seek to enter and will not be able. Why? Because they believed the tour guide on the left. They believed that the flat paved trail with much revelry and laughter and seeming carelessness doesn't lead to the same destination after all. So what the implication of what Jesus is saying here is clear. And let's be honest, we only need to look around a little bit and compare the ways of the many to see exactly what Jesus is saying. And J.C. Ryle writes this of the passage. It is an awful conclusion. Our souls naturally turn away from it. But scripture and facts alike combine to shut us up to it. Salvation to the uttermost is offered to men. All things are ready on God's part. Christ is willing to receive sinners, but sinners are not willing to come to Christ, and hence few are saved. You see, the way of Christ is the way of the tortoise, steadily striving not looking back, never giving up. It's a long, long walk. It's all in the same direction. And it's all on a very difficult trail, but it's not impossible. And it's the only way to salvation. And oh, how tempting it is to look over on that other trail to the others, to see what they're up to. Their carelessness about life. It seems like they have all the fun. They get all the stuff. They have rampant sexual endeavors and lavish lifestyles. And it's so tempting to see them on that paved wide trail when we're huffing and puffing. 
and want to hop on over to where they are and sprint to the finish at the very last minute to try and win the race on their own. But this is not the way of the kingdom. Now wait, you may be saying, this sounds like you're telling us that Jesus says our salvation is based upon our works. I need to live a certain way and do the right things and say the right things and make sure my foot doesn't slip to the right or the left or I'll fall off the trail, I'll break a leg, and since it could be months before someone else comes along, I might be left alone to die with no change made in the end. But is that what Jesus is saying here? It's very important for us to recall the words of James. I'm sure you all know it. James writes this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith. I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Let's recall the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. He writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear... As we think of the scriptures collectively, what is being said? How are we saved? By grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, so that no one can boast, but can only look to God as the author and provider and finisher of our faith. But how do I know that I have faith? Well, Paul tells us we were created for good works in Christ Jesus, that we should walk in them. And James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, to bring us back to verse 24, if I have genuine faith in Christ, if I am one who is truly saved, I will be striving to make my way down the long, difficult, dusty trail to the great celestial city because my faith in Christ compels me to do all that God calls me to. I'm now enabled to do it, and I do it out of a thankful, willing, and obedient heart to please God and to grow in deeper, more fulfilling communion with Him. So what does that look like? It's what we've spent weeks during our Sunday school hour looking at one foot in front of the other, utilizing the wonderful means of grace that God has provided for us to know him and to delight in him more fully. Taking in his word, communicating with him in prayer, surrounding myself with his people, utilizing the ordinances of the church, striving toward the narrow door by God's provision, by God's mercy, by God's abundant grace. He holds us, he sustains us, and he keeps us moving forward, not concerned with the latest pit stop of all the hairs around us, but plodding 
faithfully as thankful tortoises along the journey. Now we may ask, why does Jesus tell his inquirer that many will seek to enter, but will be able to do so in the end? Let's read. Jesus continues in verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you say, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Jesus elaborates further as to why it is that there are many who will be shut out from the kingdom of heaven. In our day, it's somewhat of a given that people are going to show up to things fashionably late. Now, what that means, I'm not really sure. Why everyone can't just show up at the time something's supposed to start, I don't quite understand, but that's for another day entirely. But imagine if you were invited to a wedding reception of one of your dearest friends. They had a private wedding, so you weren't a part of the ceremony, but you were invited to the reception and decided, well, we're going to show up 30 minutes late. We're going to be fashionably late. And you get there, and you see that the door is closed. And you go to open the door, and you find that it's locked. That's strange, you think. So you knock at the door and the owner of the house comes and it just so happens to be the father of your best friend. And with a big smile, you say, it is so nice to see you. And without batting an eye or cracking a smile, he looks at you and says, I do not know who you are. You cannot come in. But wait, I'm, I'm one of your daughter's best friends. She's told me all about you. Her and I have laughed together. We've cried together. So many memories. And he responds, you're too late. You need to leave. The door is closed. Now, this picture might seem harsh. But the warning from Jesus here is loud and clear. The time is now. There is a time limit to the offer of salvation. But once the master of the house closes the door, it's over. The fact that you can hear my voice right now, the fact that you can read the words on the pages of the Bible, means that you can respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. But when your body is gone, so too is the opportunity for repentance. The Bible tells us it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. No second chance to come back around and to knock at the door to make your case. You have no case to make. The master has no good reason to let you in other than a free and generous offer that while there is time, while the narrow door is open, You may enter through repentance and faith. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, Now, today is the day of salvation. Friend, if you do not know Christ, if you do not trust Him and treasure Him and delight in Him and look to Him with all of your hope and assurance, trusting His promises, not resting in your good works, but in the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, then do not be surprised in the end to find that door closed in your face. If you do not know Christ, today is the day. Repent, turn from your sin, call on God to rescue you from sin and death and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually that narrow door will be slammed shut either by your dying or by the Lord's return, ushering in eternal tragedy for those who have not entered the kingdom of God. Why have they not entered the kingdom? Uh, We see it in verse 25. They do not have a personal relationship with the master. I do not know where you come from, he said. But we ate and drank in your presence. We listened as you taught. Oh, how many on the day of judgment will say similar things. I've eaten the Lord's Supper. I've listened to a preacher every week for 50 years. I only listen to his radio in my car. And that's all good and well. But some of you have never missed the Lord's Supper. And on the day of judgment will hear the master say, I don't know you, and I don't know where you came from. You see, none of the people on the wide, easy trail made it on time to the door because they were too busy only living once. They may have tended to a few supposed religious duties along the way, but they never established a relationship with the master, with our Lord. And so they were only left to plead their own good works. Were they enough? Well, not when the master's requirement is perfection. So am I saying that we must be perfect to to enter through the narrow door? No, I'm telling you that's God's standard. So if you're not perfect, absolutely 100% spotless and without blemish, you're in trouble. And that's what the master says in verse 27. Depart from me, all of you workers of evil. And Jesus goes on to explain, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. In other words, all of the great patriarchs of the faith. When the master stands at the door, you may get a glimpse in through the crack and see them sitting there. But if you've arrived late, you will be left where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the flame is not quenched and the worm will not die. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. 
You see, we may be preachers who have ministered to thousands. We may be Sunday school teachers who have pointed many little children to Christ. We may be missionaries set on pedestals because we've made great sacrifices in life and yet in the end still be castaways. Why? Because mighty works do not save us, but only vital union with Jesus Christ through real and true faith saves us. So the burning question is, does Christ know you? Are you in an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ? And the corollary question to that is, has this relationship with Christ that you claimed, has it turned you away from evil? Are you disgusted with your sin? Are you moving toward holiness in God's point of view? Or will he say, Away from me, you evildoer. The telling question is not a matter of ministry or standing in the church as an officer or a longtime Sunday school teacher, but it is a question of authentic righteousness. So what of this perfect standard of God's? How can anyone live up to it? It's a great question. And only one ever has. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life and died a sacrificial sinner's death. God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin, that knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when a person of true faith and trust in Jesus Christ is welcomed into the Master's house, he doesn't deserve it but he lets them in anyway. Why? How? You see, our faith in Christ, it's not simply a little boost to get us over the hump. It's it's not that he's our helper to make our lives on earth a little bit easier and a bit more prosperous. Church history and our own personal lives as Christians do not bear that out too well. Our faith in Christ is recognizing that I myself have nothing to provide in the way of righteousness. I cannot meet God's requirement on my own, but Christ has. Christ died on a cross where I should have died. Christ took upon himself the full wrath of God that I should endure. Christ was laid in a grave for three days and resurrected from the grave that I should lay in for eternity. Christ defeated the enemy whom I once served and loved and made me to be his own instead. And because of Christ having taken the penalty that was due to me, his right standing before the Father is credited to my account. It's given to me that I need not cower in fear. I don't need to run and hide on the day of judgment, but instead I can boldly approach the throne of grace and say, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I plead the perfection of Christ. Christ died for me and I have nothing else to offer. You see, the workers of lawlessness aren't living their lives to honor God. They're living life to honor themselves. The external morality of their lives is not about God. It's about them making sure that they're looked on well by others. 
but nothing escapes the eye of God. He knows more about your heart and mine than we ever will. He knows more about all things that have ever existed than anyone ever will. And so in light of this, for those of us who say we are Christians, we must ask ourselves, are we concerned with true spiritual growth? Are we striving to enter through the narrow door? It may very well say something about whether or not we are truly going to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Now notice, this is the very thing that would have rocked the world of the one who asked Jesus this question. Notice something very specific that's really easy to read over in this text this morning. Look in verse 24. Jesus says, for many will seek to enter and will not be able. But then in verse 25, he says this. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and, what's the next word? You. You begin to stand outside and knock at the door. Again, later in that verse, he says, then he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. You see, here's the deal. Most of the Jewish people around Jesus thought that they were safe and secure. They had no reason to fear whatsoever whether or not they would be safe in the end because they were ethnically Jewish. But notice the man's question had nothing to do with himself. It had to do with everyone else. But Jesus turns it right back on him. Jesus was dealing with many people just like our neighbors, and I hate to say it, maybe even like some of you. Dependent not on Christ, not dependent on Christ's righteousness, but depending on your self-righteousness, your own works that serve as a prideful cover to never actually reveal the sinfulness of your own true heart. But Paul reminds us in Romans 9 that not all are descending from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because someone was born into the family of Abraham doesn't mean they will inherit the benefits of spiritual life. That's what they thought. True spiritual life requires true faith in Jesus Christ and true allegiance to his kingdom. And day by day by day, it is changing us as we are on the trail striving for the narrow door. And so Jesus has made his answer to the question intensely personal, and he ends with a radical notion that surely caught all of his listeners off guard all the more. We conclude with verses 29 through 30. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. You see, what makes Aesop's fable about the tortoise and the hare so helpful is that the most likely outcome isn't what happens. The hare should have won easily. All of the odds were in his favor. But he wasn't depending on the necessity to strive. He was depending on his stock, his, his breed, his previous experience. 
And so he took the path of least resistance. And all along the way, he kept thinking, you know, I'm only going to live once. I might as well take it all in. And in the end, it was too late. And Jesus tells us that those who are welcomed into the master's house to recline at table won't simply be from a small Middle Eastern country called Israel. No, they will be people from the east and the west, from the north and the south. In other words, it's not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And if that wasn't shocking enough to his hearers, he concludes with these now famous words. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And remember what we saw last week? When Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he said, it's like a mustard seed or it's like a little grain of leaven. It may be small, it may be insignificant to our eye, but it grows up and it flourishes into something that makes a profound difference. And you see, something that Luke shows us more than any other writer in the Bible is that Jesus' focus wasn't on powerful, wealthy elitists in his day but on lowly, meek, and humble followers of him. And brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. Jesus is not impressed by international platforms and great wealth and glitz and glamour and fame. He came to seek and save those who are lost, those who know and admit that they are lost and can honestly turn to him and say, I am broken and I need you. And doing so, we may be dead last in this world, but what does it matter? What does it matter? This life is it's but a vapor. It's here for one minute and then it's gone. But eternal life with Christ, forever life with God, it is there we will be, no longer last, but first. See, many of you in here are like me, just like the tortoise. If people who knew us 10 or 20 years ago were to see us as we are today, they'd be quite surprised. They would peg us as some of the most unlikely individuals to recline at the table in the kingdom of God. You see, based on the world's system and standards, you and I are not the people who are supposed to finish first. But if we are true children of God, who by faith in Jesus Christ are striving to enter through the narrow door, indeed we will be first in the kingdom of God. Christian, are you striving on the narrow path, the difficult and dusty trail, with full trust in Jesus Christ, who will keep your foot from slipping, who will guard you from all harm? I pray that we are. And let us all be diligent to take inventory of our lives and consider what we are trusting in, that we will be welcomed to enter into the kingdom of God and not be shut out. May we all in this room together be allowed to recline at table with the master in his house. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you with deep gratitude that in your word you have told us the way of salvation. 
you have promised us for those who repent and believe in the gospel that you will keep us unto the end and that you will make us to persevere on the long, difficult and yet doable path of the Christian life that we might enter through the narrow door and recline at table with the master of the house. Lord, sometimes it seems like all of the world is racing past us towards bigger and greater things. I pray that you make us to be faithful plotters, one foot in front of the other, not looking back, not turning our gaze to, uh, to Egypt, looking at all the things that the world has to offer and, and whining and complaining because that's not ours. Lord, may we not look to Egypt, but look to the eternal land of promise that has been prepared for us with an inheritance awaiting us that is far greater than anything that we could even imagine. Far greater than anything that could be articulated in human words. And so we pray, O God, that you help us to be faithful in the journey looking to you and you alone and trusting that whatever trials we endure, whatever difficulties we face, that you are with us, you are keeping us, you are sustaining us. And Lord, I pray for those in here this morning who are walking down the wide, easy path of life, that they would recognize their own folly and that they would repent and believe the gospel, and that they would find true life in Jesus Christ alone. That they not get to the door and knock, only to be found that they are shut out. Send the Holy Spirit, that they would have new life in Jesus for your glory, and that they would rejoice in Christ with great joy. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.